presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright. I'm chairman of the board of Common Sense Institute. Thank you for joining us today. Today's episode is going to be a fun one. I hope I can keep up with our two guests. I'm joined by two of the most acclaimed and awarded political reporters in our state who will hopefully, note I underline hopefully, give us a sneak peek as their thoughts on the upcoming November ballot. Now, we expect some opinionated views, and and if they're not accepted by all of us, we understand. Joining us are Lynn Bartles of Colorado Politics and Ed Silver with Denver Business Journal. As a reminder, CSI does not endorse or advocate yes or no on any issue or campaign. We're a nonpartisan research institute with the goal to educate and inform Coloradoans on the facts related to public policy issues. So let's get started here. Glenn, you published a piece a couple of weeks ago titled, It's Time to Vote Now More Than Ever. Why is that? So with 11 confirmed statewide initiatives, is this ballot set to be one of the longest in Colorado history? It's up there. It's not the most. We had 14 in 2008. We had 13 in 2018. We only had four in 2014. I don't remember that being, wow, what a great election to cover. There's so few ballot measures. But um, voting excer- experts say that one of the reasons but Colorado has a high turnout is Colorado is one of the states that allows citizens to put measures on the ballot. And, you know, it, it, they, sometimes they're put on the ballot probably to drive voters to the election. All right, Lynn, uh, I'm not going to let you get away with that answer. So I'll come back to you in a second with regards to follow up. Ed, let's go to you for a second. November 2020 ballot proposition amendments, uh, you know, they're all over the map, okay? What's the most important that we ought to pay attention to? And Lynn, I want to come back to you with a question after that. Well, it's a great question because, I mean, I think too many people are going to be focused almost solely on the presidential race and one of America's most watched U.S. Senate races. So uh, the idea that you need to get past that and get to the initiatives is key. I, I think a couple of these are going to affect uh a ton of the state. And I ended up, of course, looking at this through my business lens here. Um, but we start with the paid family and medical leave initiative. Uh, this is an idea that has been swirling around at the Capitol since 2014, but has never gotten enough support to make it through both chambers of the Capitol. And what it is, is it's an idea that uh, if voters enact it, every employer in the state must provide at least 12 weeks of paid family leave to someone who is going to uh, have a child, going to take care of themselves, going to take care of a, a sick relative. Um, and, and and this is going to have big consequences for both the employees and the employers of this state. So I think that's one people have to pay attention to. The other one that, that I would focus a lot on is the, uh, the idea of repealing the Gallagher Amendment, uh, a 38-year-old law that governs how property taxes are paid. Uh, this is something that affects businesses, 
uh, it affects businesses hugely. I mean, they, they pay four times as much right now as residents pay in terms of the assessment on their property tax rates. It affects residents. Um, and, it, uh, and it's going to be a big question for Colorado going forward on how we fund services such as special districts and school districts uh, and whether we need to rethink what we've been doing for the past four decades. So those are the two that jump out the most to me. Ed, I uh, appreciate your answer. I want to follow up with you, Lynn. I'm you're kind of your average Joe and, uh, voter. I'm really interested. I read the blue book and I read whatever information is out there. But uh, do you really think that we as a populace in Colorado are well enough informed to make some decisions uh, that would have significant financial impact or understand them? Let's start with the Family Leave Act. Do you think that we're a well-informed enough that we can uh, pass something that will have what some people say could have a very significant impact on the state, employers in this state? Well, I'm a columnist, so I can have an opinion. And I will tell you that my opinion, for the most part, on ballot measures is a very negative one. As you know, we have conflicting ballot measures in our Constitution, and that's because you can put something on. The paid family leave, this to me, this is an example. The legislature said, no, we elect these people to do things. The legislature said no, so, oh, we're going to bypass the legislature and go to the public. And I have long said that the public doesn't really understand some of these ballot measures. I'll give you a good example. Amendment 41, the ethics ballot measure, which, by the way, was totally funded by Board of Education member Jared Polis, And now you see these ads running against John Hickenlooper for the Senate saying he's a criminal and he violated all these ethics law. Of course that was going to pass. Ethics is like saying puppies and kittens. But it was even Polis concedes it was terribly written. It's been used for political gotchas. And I just think a lot of these are not things that the public reads enough to be informed on to vote on them. Now, I will tell you, before I covered politics and I didn't know what things were, I didn't vote for them if I hadn't read it and I didn't know about it. But, yeah, I think it's a terrible way to govern. Ed, I have a follow-up question for you on this. As I understand it, uh, the Family Leave Act, to a large extent, is funded uh, 90 percent or thereabouts without a state money, and that the Electoral College vote has uh, funding that's 90 percent out of state money. Hey, what's going on? Is this state just being bought by outsiders, outsider influence? And, or, or do you have any thoughts or comments about that? Well, I'm going to trust you on this one, Earl. I have not done my own research into uh, the funding of either of those yet. In fact, uh, National Popular Vote is something we haven't even covered. But uh, traditionally, yes, Colorado is the easiest state in the country uh, to get a ballot initiative on. You only need 5% of the signatures of the amount of people that voted in the most recent Secretary of State's election, which, by the way, is usually less than whoever votes in the governor's election this year, but that year because some people vote for governor and then drop off the ballot and don't care. So, yeah, I mean, Colorado has always been a testing ground for groups that want to push national policy on a local level. And, I mean, I think the national popular vote is a good example of that. I mean, it is technically national policy. It's being run in a number of states 
The difference with Colorado uh, is that uh, the ballot question here is an attempt by Coloradans to stop the national popular vote uh, from going into place. Paid family medical leave is the same way. This is being pushed in a number of states right now. I mean, Colorado's uh, efforts are, are unique in some ways, but the people who have been watching this state for six years from across the country saying, can Colorado do this, uh, are now eager to chip in from across the country. So yeah, you're going to see that um, in, in a lot of instances that, that that national money is going to go into our, our both our ballot initiatives and our candidate races. I mean, I, I don't know what the percentage of national money is that's uh, uh, funding all the ads we're seeing for the Senate race right now, but I know that it's the majority of the money, not local money. Well, I guess from a just an average citizen here, you have to wonder uh, how do you uh, take your own state and have a chance to have your own say with what you want to do instead of having outsiders in essence try to influence that. But speaking of outside you know, COVID-19, my God, what an incredible impact. You all were talking about it before our conversation got started officially. What, what kind of an impact is it going to have on this year's election, Lynn? Well, it's funny because there are a lot of measures on the ballot, but, you know, it did affect people who were trying to get signatures after the restrictions were put in place, that sort of thing. And it, it had an impact that way. And when you say an impact in voting, I mean, I guess if we had a health care, you know, a major health care thing, for the people who said, oh, I need to go to court and you need to give me more time to get on the ballot. Well, you can actually start getting on the ballot before COVID ha happened. You know, ballot measures are a cycle, a two-year cycle. In fact, we already have a ballot measure filed for the 2022 election. Wow. Well, let me talk about the top of the ticket with both of you. And the one that I think is grabbing a lot of attention is the Hickenlooper, uh, Cory Gardner. How do you feel the COVID-19 might impact the turnout, the statewide turnout for that particular uh, that particular election? Well, I'm going to start with you, Ed, and I'm going to come back to you, Lynn. I like both of your points of view. You know, I don't know that COVID uh, affects it that much. I mean, I think that the fact that it is already one of the most expensive, most heavily watched Senate races in the country um, is is really going to affect the, the turnout a lot more. The fact that Colorado has you know been used to voting by mail, uh, I think people are going to be paying attention to it. I think this is going to be a heavy turnout year period. It's a presidential election year. It's a year in which people have been staying at home, listening to and watching news more than usual because they don't have a lot of options right now. Um, so I think you could you could ask that question down the ballot, and it's we're going to see more turnout, more interest than typical years. Okay, Lynn, just to expand that a little bit. Do you see the uh, the Gardner Hickenlooper uh, election uh, encouraging people to participate more in the ballot initiatives? I wouldn't say that it's an impact on the ballot initiatives. I mean, I know in some cases, uh, you know, you hear that they put a minimum wage measure on the ballot one year to help drive up. Democratic turnout. We have a late-term uh, abortion bill on there that drives out the left and you know the pro-choice and the you know pro-life people that sort of thing. I think it will be a high turnout because June was a very high turnout for the primary, and I think in some ways we talk about the U.S. Senate race, but I think the presidential race is the driver for all things. I mean, that's what's driving in a lot of ways the U.S. Senate race because of the state. Donald Trump is not popular in the state. 
Well, let's, let's go back to the ballot issue for a second. One of them that didn't make it is the progressive income tax measure. You know, it was, uh, I taxed somebody else, but not me. And, you know, it was one of those things where you looked like it well, might have a pretty good chance of passing, but it was pulled, Ed. What's going on? Well, they, uh, they said that simply they could not get out and collect signatures the way they wanted to because of COVID. Uh, some, uh, ballot initiative campaigns took the uh, took the attitude to heck with it. Nothing's changing from past years, other than we're wearing gloves and changing up pens. Some were a lot more careful. This is one of those that uh, that said they were a lot more careful. I mean, was there a lack of support? I don't know. But um, when when a ballot says we we didn't want to go this year, we wanted to be careful because of of COVID. I, I think that's fair. I, I think maybe they may have also realized this was not a good year. Uh, to do anything that involves taxes on the ballot uh, with such high unemployment rates and and people staying home. And there was there was quite a few important measures that didn't make to the ballot. I mean, there was also a, uh, a measure that would have put growth caps into place for the front range that didn't make it into the ballot because its author, Daniel Hayes, said, I don't want to go out and collect signatures either. So, um, so it's not the only ballot initiative that stopped because of COVID. And I'm wondering, I feel like there's ballot measures that normally are reserved for the off-year elections, like reducing the income tax rate and stuff. I was surprised to see those kind of more money financials on this ballot. Were you? Not really. I think people in general like to put their initiatives on a ballot like this. I think you get a lot more attention. Um, and I think even if the money financial one that you might normally see in an off-year election, because frankly, more conservative measures like an income tax reduction do pretty well in off years, um, I think that they felt, look, if we're going to ask for a tax cut, this is a pretty good year to ask for a tax cut. Hey, guess what? Did you, uh, did you have your wages cut? you probably want a tax cut too. So I think that probably drove it in a way as well. But I look at that one as a catastrophe for Colorado. And maybe I'm reading it wrong, but I just know that I covered the legislative sessions where they cut taxes permanently. A few small groups said Colorado is a boom bust state. Don't make tax cuts permanent. And look what happened after that. I mean, they trimmed two billion from the budget and couldn't still couldn't make it work. We're, if we had great roads like Utah or places like that, maybe you could say with the tax cut, yeah, reduce the taxes, but we have terrible roads. Well, you know, we've one of the things that we've done just to plug for the uh, Common Sense Institute, we put a, a we had two fellows uh, that uh, Ben Stein and uh, uh, Henry Sobenay, who did a study on transportation and came up with an alternative uh, with regards to how to fund uh, significant uh, road improvements as well as expansion of our transportation system. And I would really encourage anybody, thanks to you, Lynn, for bringing it up, to read that because it's kind of a roadmap, a reasonable roadmap for uh, the state legislators to think about and then go back to our uh, citizens and say, hey, there's, there's an answer here as to how we can improve our transportation system, particularly our roads. So thanks for bringing it up. And well, those I, are two really smart guys. Yeah, they are. And they did a marvelous, marvelous study for us. But go to Common Sense Institute uh, website and uh, read it uh, for those of you that haven't. Ed, I want to go back to, on the tax issue. I was astonished by CSI report that showed that that uh, 57% of our current government spending is based upon fees. And now we have something that's saying, hey, wait a minute. We want to make certain that... Uh, 
if there's going to be a, a piece of legislation and, and additional services supported by fees uh, above a certain amount over a certain period of time, we want to make darn well certain that the public has a chance to vote on it. Give us your thoughts on that, would you please? Yeah, you're talking about uh, Proposition 117, and I think this is one that's kind of snuck under the radar a little bit. Um, it is a, a ballot measure that, as you mentioned, says, look, if somebody is starting an enterprise, and an enterprise is, uh, I, I think a, a good example is the uh, the faster enterprise, which charges uh, fees upon the renewal of your driver's license, and, and excuse me, not your driver's license, the renewal on your car registration, um, and puts them toward road and bridge repairs. And, and the idea of an enterprise is that you are supposed to fund something directly from something that has an access to it, in this case, drivers and bridges. But a lot of people have looked at state government and said, look, they're using enterprises too broadly. They are not funding exactly what they're supposed to. And frankly, they're disguising taxes as fees. So this says, if you are getting more than $100 million in the first five years of an enterprise, and quite frankly, that's going to cover almost every enterprise. Because if you're, if you're doing an enterprise, whether it be the hospital affordability fee or the faster fee, it's being done to raise a lot of money. Then this has got to go to the voters. And, um, and, and this is one that I've heard concern across the board, um, not only from Democrats who are still running the, uh, the state house saying this is going to cut off our ways of funding things. Even the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce uh, came out uh, against this as well. Um, but there are a lot of people who are saying, look, we need to we need to call a tax a tax and we need to stop putting all these fees on there in place of taxes. So this is a, a serious debate about the future of, of, of state government that I think not enough people are having. Lately. Lynn, do you have a comment? No, I do think it's one of those in reading through these. I think it's one of those that's confusing and as much as I covered the legislature and I understand the whole fee fight, I still think, is this one that's going to make people's eyes glaze over as important as it is? Lynn, I want to follow up on a previous comment you made with regards to taxation. As you know, Prop 116 is a state income tax reduction from 4.63 uh, down to 4.55. You know, to some extent, people are going to say, well, it's peanuts. But you've already made a comment with regards to you know, tax reduction in the state. Uh, what do you think about this proposition? I think these sort of things should be done by the legislature and not through ballot measures. But that's my humble opinion. And you're, if I understand you correctly, you're saying, hey, this pandemic situation has taken billions of dollars out of the state budget. This is foolish to take more money out of it for this. Yes, I mean, we're already looking at cuts all over the place. And I know people like to say, oh, it's such a bloated government. And there's so much this and there's so much that. But so much of state government is mandated. Yeah, it is. It's just like the federal government's mandated. Right. It's federal well, government rules. And Ed, you've already said that you're not up on the particular issue, but I'm still going to press it. This is, has to do with uh, a uh, repealing... Uh, the state legislatures uh, act to uh, have the electoral college vote for Colorado go towards the popular vote of the name of, of the country. Now, I want you to know that I am a co-chair of that particular effort to, to repeal that legislation. So that's just a full disclosure here. We know that some of the research that we've done is that federal funding uh, tends to flow to those swing states. And there was a study done, uh, pretty, you know, pretty well acclaimed study that based on information, unfortunately, up to about 2008, 2010, but it seems like it's still in place. 
is that a very smart from a, from Colorado's perspective to give up our electoral college vote just from purely an economic perspective? You, you know, I, I'll just say this. First of all, it's it's always important uh, to uh, to put into perspective that, that voting for to go into the national popular vote compact uh, does not mean we go into it right away. We have to actually wait until a states that constitute a majority of the electoral college all agree to be in it. Two hundred seventy. Right. And I mean, and, and, and from what I can tell, we're never close to that yet. But um, th- that said, to your point about the economics of it, I, I think this is I think most people are probably thinking about this more from purely an ideological standpoint. Do you believe in the Electoral College or not? And then there's a secondary uh, question here is, you know, do you believe that, you know, if the Electoral College is outdated, we should remove it like we have removed constitutional amendments in the past, which is get three quarters of the states to, uh, uh, to, to put it on to two thirds of them to get behind it? Or do we use this backdoor maneuver uh, to say, we're going to give our electoral college votes away uh, if a majority of the electoral college voters uh, agree with us? So um, yeah, I mean, it's a good point. And, and not only in terms of campaign, uh, federal government funding flowing to, to uh, swing states, let's remember how much our you know, TV stations and, and others are floated in swing election in swing states like Colorado because everybody wants to advertise here as well. But uh, but I I, I think it's going to be more of an ideological perspective than it is a, an economic perspective in most people's minds. As I said before, it somewhat bothers me that we have uh, New York, Washington D.C., and California uh, putting in about uh, four million dollars into the state to help uh, fund keep the popular vote uh, going to na- have the national popular vote prevail for our electoral college. But that's my campaign pitch for the moment. Ed, you've written a, fo- a few articles regarding Amendment B. Can you explain what it is uh, and what change in the Colorado property tax rate rankings could we expect to see and how does it affect local municipality funding? This is a really right. hot topic. Yeah, it's a hot topic. It's a complex one. So I'm going to try to do this as simply as possible. Uh, under what is called the Gallagher Amendment, uh, we pay property taxes uh, based on a formula that 55% of all property taxes collected in the state of Colorado, and these are taxes that go to school districts, the county governments, to local governments, to special districts, they do not actually go to the state. 55% of those collected uh, must be paid by businesses uh, or by non-residential uses, whether it be business, ag, or oil and gas. And in 1982, in this past, that was roughly about where it was. Uh, about 55% of the state's property pa- taxes were paid by those businesses. Because of the building boom we've seen over the last four decades in Colorado, that is way out of whack at this point. And as, You're talking about housing. You're talking about housing building. Sorry, we're, I'm talking about the housing boom, yes. Um, and as such, right now, the assessment rate on non-residential properties is 29% of their value. Uh, the assessment rate on residential properties is 7.15% um, because they have to pay a lot less in total uh, than non-residential properties do. And it's going to drop even more uh, next year, everyone says. And so what this says is we are going to throw that out. We are going to freeze property rates where they were. So this is not going to mean a rate hike for Colorado residences. And we are not going to keep having this continuing cliff where residential properties boom much more than non-residential properties and they pay lower amounts. One of the reasons that's important is because property taxes 
fund things like school districts. And if you are living in a highly residential area with a lot, without a lot of uh, oil and gas work or a lot of commercial properties in it, your school district or your special district is losing funding because each of those properties is paying less. Now, of course, here's the trick. Um, opponents of this repeal point out rightly that while the residential property tax rate won't go up, everyone will pay more in taxes uh, as long as your home value goes up. Typically, it's a, it's been kind of an equilibrium where you, your home value goes up, but your property tax rate goes down. So you don't notice that big a difference in your property tax rate bill if you're a resident. This will basically say, nope, you keep the same rate. And as your home value goes up, uh, your property taxes are going to go up as well. That's in a nutshell is what we're trying to decide here and, and to decide whether or not businesses should still bear 55% of the res of the property tax burden in the state where they now account for about 20% of the total property tax uh, base in the state. So if my house is worth $10 and it goes up in value 4 to 8%, the tax on that will go up 4 to 8%. That's what I would expect. Is that fair? If you are to repeal this, yes, right now, if the value of your house goes up four to eight percent, your taxes may go up a little bit, but they're good. That value rise is going to be offset by your assessment ratio having to go down to keep this uh, 55-45 ratio of non-residential to residential property uh, that the Constitution demands. So if amendment, if amendment B passes, my example, $10 and in the house appreciating 10% means my, my property tax would go up 8% or thereabouts. Your, the amount you are paying rather than your rates, yes. But, uh, but then again, businesses uh, won't see quite the same escalation that they're seeing right now. Nope, totally understand. And, and it seems to me most states have that. Is that correct? No, 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 no. states have anything like this. No, no, uh, no, this no, 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 not Gallagher right. Amendment. I don't mean Gallagher. I mean, if we don't, if we revoke Gallagher Amendment, what we would have is what most states have. Yes, but we're already a low property tax state. Um, the fact that residences are being appraised at 7.15%, I don't know that there's another state that appraises, that, that assesses that low what in America. I, what I'm trying to get at is the increases we would have would be along, on par with what other states have as far as a formula for increasing property taxes. That's all I'm trying to get at. That, I think that's fair, yes. You have previously written pieces concerning paid family program. What differences do you see between previous ones and the current Prop 118? What, what's, what's happening here? Uh, Proposition 118 actually parallels pretty closely to most of what has been introduced and hasn't been able to pass the legislature since 2014. It is a program that would charge, uh, would basically charge a fee on, on each paycheck that would be divided between the employer and the employees to be paid. It would put it toward a general fund that employees could dip into to take partially paid leave uh, up to 90% of their salary levels if they are among the lowest paid employees in the state. And they could use it for up to 12 weeks uh, to take care of a newborn, uh, to take care of a family member, to take care of themselves, or to escape a domestic violence situation. Um, what's interesting about this, maybe it's not news that it, it looks very much like things that have come up for the legislature in years past, 
But this year, in an attempt to find a way to get this through the legislature and to get the blessing of Governor Polis, who has not been a fan of the traditional idea of how to uh, pay for paid family leave, even if he's a fan of the notion of paid family leave, um, they actually were going to go to a whole different system that's very close to workers' compensation, uh, where instead of paying into this great state government organization, you would have to just simply go out to the market and either uh, provide your own uh, paid family leave insurance, or you would have to find a paid family leave insurance policy out there. That met with opposition from both sides. And so backers of this went back to the traditional model. And now they're going to go to the, to the voters and to see, you know, hey, how much are you willing to have your own paycheck taxed uh, and to have your employer pay so that we can set this model up where you can have uh, designated paid family leave? Lynn, I'd, I'd like to try to get to the politics of this and what Ed just said. Lynn, basically, you, we've just experienced where the the legislature couldn't pass it, couldn't come to an agreement. In fact, it was pulled, as you probably know, in the last legislative session. And now we're avoiding the legislative portion of uh, creating a law. Now we're going to the people on something that could have a very significant impact on employers here in the state. From your perspective, what in the world you know, is an answer here? You've got uh, if the last number I checked was $2.6 million has come from out-of-state funds you have $460,000 that is state monies uh, for this. Lynn, is the system working or do we are we experiencing a broken system here or is this just the way it should work and we should expect it seeing going forward? Well, this is the system. It's been going like that for a while. I will say that I went to a fundraiser recently for a a Senate candidate and a state house candidate, and in talking to some of the business lobbyists there, they're very afraid of what more could pass that would hurt business. Now, you'll hear the flip side saying when Republicans controlled everything, it was, you know, heyday for business, that sort of thing. So, what you see happen at the state house is that pendulum swing. You'll see somebody go too far to the left, and then you'll go too far to the right. And only if we, if we could only find a sweet spot in the middle, it would be great. This might not be that year. Okay, well, as you all know, our mission is to educate and inform the public on the issues that we think are relevant with regards to the public policies going on here in the, in the state. What do you see as the two or three key public policy issues that our subscribers to the podcast ought to be aware of and also how that might be, uh, if anything, on the current ballot? What are the two or three that have really grabbed your attention? Lynn, do you want to start? Well, I think, you know, the finance measures, because, you know, money is everything and money pays for it. There's always kind of the benign one, too, you know, the uh, the bingo one that the legislature put on there that was pretty much everybody endorsed, which is sort of like no big deal. You've got increasing the sin tax, cigarette and nicotine tax. You have uh, increasing gaming limits in the towns that have gaming. I mean, you have an abortion measure. When I look at it, it looks like to me like a Colorado ballot. You've got a mixture of things. You've got, you've just got an interesting thing. That's that's just my humble. Ed, is there anything that you see is going to have a, a long-term impact on Colorado's future that's a ballot initiative? Well, I'm actually going to go ahead uh I'm going to go total politician on here, and I'm, I'm going to answer uh, the question you didn't ask, Earl. And that is, um, I uh, 
I think there are two big issues here that aren't directly on the ballots that, that, that people need to think about. One is, and we've touched on this, the idea of transportation funding. The state is horribly behind on transportation funding. And we're going to start seeing a, a drying up of our economic success if people can't get around and get to work. And I know that seems odd at a time when we're all working from home, but that is not going to stay here forever. And so we need to, we need to think again about how we fund transportation. And some of these ballot measures actually do answer that. Um, I, I will say that uh, transportation advocates are worried about the, the fee question because one of the primary things that is uh, going on behind the scenes of negotiations with the legislature trying to find a compromise funding package uh, is the idea of adding fees um, on things from, from Uber to Amazon to delivery services to electric vehicles, which a lot of people would like to see the legislators work out not take to the people in this case. But transportation funding has got to be the subject we talk more about, even if it's not on this ballot initiative, and people need to think about that. The second uh, one and final one I'll give you is, and I think the paid family leave initiative is most tied into this, the idea of what we allow our employers to run. And employers are extremely important because everybody works for one, um, unless you run your own company. Uh, and, and what we don't allow them to do. Paid family leave is a unique ballot initiative because it basically says, yes, we understand that some employers have this policy. And the bigger the company you get, uh, the more likely you are to have some sort of long-term paid leave policy in place. Um, but we believe everybody should be offering them. And it's no longer the choice of the employer on what to do that. This follows up on the heels of, for example, the, the state last year passing a law uh, that allows cities and, and, and counties to set the minimum wage after uh, a ballot initiative in 2016 had raised the state's minimum wage. Uh, I think people need to ask the question at this point, okay, how much are we going to let people who own businesses and who invest in businesses make the final decisions about businesses? Or, or are we to the point, almost like the beginning of the 20th century, where we feel like businesses run so much amok that we need to send the state government in? And if we do, what is increased regulation going to do to our status as one of the best job creation states in the country? So I think those are the underlying issues people need to think about when they go to the ballots. And I will piggyback on that and say that I know employers who, when they had to close because of the coronavirus, still paid their employees, not ordered by any government to do so, but just they're that kind of business. Well, you know, I, I must tell you, I really appreciate your, your insights and I want to, uh, to encourage the listeners of this podcast to, uh, to go to our website where we have a November ballot uh, summary where you can look at the various ballot measures, assessment, and some of them we have a pretty deep deep uh, research on them. Ed, Lynn, uh, just as any last-minute open comments that you would like to share with, uh, after thoughts? Educate yourself. Go vote. Um, if, if you heard something that we've thought about, that we've said that you hadn't thought about, Look more into it. Read what I write. Read what Lynn writes. Read what everybody writes, though. I mean, educate yourself as much as you can before you go to the ballot this year. There is a ton on there, uh, but there's a ton of very important stuff on there. And knowing as much as you can before you vote is key to having a successful democracy. Lynn? Just remember the bingo item is not controversial. Everything else needs to be read carefully. <laughs> well, the one thing I, I guess I would add to what you're saying is there's a lot of unintended consequences in the ballot initiatives, and I hope people give it some thought. Thanks for your time. This has been excellent. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. 
for more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.